0: If you guys have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 16. We love big victories, don't we? Whether it's movies or stories, we love a story that maybe it climaxes in this giant battle and the team that we're rooting for at the end of the movie is victorious in this battle. We revel in these victories that are won, but we don't care too much about life after the battle, do we? Not many of us are concerned with the, four, the, the second uh, movie and whatever trilogy we're watching where it documents the 40 years of peace after. We want to see the battle. We want to see the big victory. Well, in Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites have just experienced their big victory. God had delivered them from their greatest enemy. See, God had sent plagues to Egypt so that Israel might be released from the grip of Pharaoh's hand. God had split the Red Sea so that Israel could walk through it on dry land and cause the Red Sea to come crashing down on the armies of Egypt. God had destroyed Israel's greatest enemy and given Israel their greatest victory. Now, if you and I were a director of the movie of Exodus, we might make an argument that maybe you should stop it right there. The people of Israel have experienced slavery. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. Maybe this is the end of the story. But God has more to teach Israel. And as soon as they're standing on the other side of the Red Sea, he has an important lesson for them, an important lesson for us this morning. God wants to teach us this morning through the people of Israel, dependence. He wants to teach us that the life that we live after he has saved us is a life of daily dependence on him. And he wants to teach us that if we can trust him to save us from our greatest enemies, we can trust him to care for us each and every day. And so you need to understand this that in our walk with Christ, we are Exodus 16 Christians. We've already crossed through the Red Sea. See, when Jesus came to this world to die on the cross to pay for our sins, he defeated our greatest enemy. If you've placed your faith in him, in Jesus, God has saved you for an eternity. And so if you can trust God to save you for eternity, what God wants to teach us this morning is that you can trust him every day to care for you in your trials, to care for your greatest needs. And yet we find that in our lives, the story's not finished. Just like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16, there's more life to live. And daily, we are troubled by the brokenness of the world. Many of us walk in trials day in and day out. And God this morning wants to teach us dependence. And so I wonder if you've walked in this morning, maybe you're burdened by a heavy trial. Maybe you're experiencing suffering in your life. God this morning wants us to look to the cross, to look to the victory that he had in Christ and be encouraged that our God is a God who cares for us on a daily basis in a broken world. Let's read Exodus chapter 16 together. Exodus chapter 16, it says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a face... There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day Now the house of Israel called this name manna it was like coriander seed white and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey Moses said this is what the Lord has commanded let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which i fed you in the wilderness when i brought you out of the land of egypt and Moses said to Aaron take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations and the Lord commanded Moses So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. I want you to see this morning this truth about God's care. The truth is that because God cares for us, I can trust in him. And the first thing I want you to see in Exodus is that I can trust that he is present in the midst of my trials. Now first we need to understand that Israel up to this point was no stranger to trial. In Egypt, they had faced trial in many ways. One example was that uh, Pharaoh had tried uh, a mass genocide of all the Hebrew males. He tried to kill every baby that was a male. Not only that, Israel had also suffered under slavery in Egypt. And they were looking to Moses and Aaron, they were looking to God, and they were asking for deliverance from all these things. Now Israel was no stranger to trial, but they also were no stranger to God's presence being with them in the midst of trial, and God delivering from the, them from these things. And so they had story after story of the victories that God had won for them. One story, like when God delivered Moses. When all the Hebrew male babies were to be killed, God delivered Moses, who would become the deliverer of God's people. Another, like when Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel go to worship God in the land. And so God sent the plagues. God delivered Israel from Egypt, sending the plagues upon Egypt so that finally Pharaoh would let them go. And finally, the one that we all think of is when they crossed through the Red Sea. And they experienced this redemption from the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And they were saved from Egypt. And God's judgment was given to the Egyptians. See, Israel time and time again had had, had experienced God's delivering Presence. This is why when they stand on the other side of the Red Sea, we should be kind of shocked by what we read in verses 1 and 2. Look what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which was between Elam and Sinai. And in verse 2 it says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in The wilderness. See, the people of Israel have just been rescued from slavery, and yet they find themselves rescued, and now they're grumbling. See, this is the way that our trials, that our difficulties in life, may be dangerous to us. They may dangerously affect our perspective. In the midst of a trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, we may be prone to forget what God has done and just dwell on our current experiences. And so in the past, it should have fueled this optimism for Israel. They had lost all hope. They felt this trial was so real that it would be better for them to die than to go on. And so they say in verse 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Now what was their trial? Look what it says again at the end of verse 3. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The people of Israel were hungry. They longed for bread, and even more specifically, they longed for meat. Now, this is the reality we need to understand about our human condition, that you and I, we have divine amnesia. We're prone to forget God, especially when things get tough. We can forget that the same God that delivered us from our greatest enemies is the same God who's placed us in this trial. See, it was God who brought them to the Red Sea, through it to the other side. And just like the Israelites had forgotten what God had done in the past, so too we may forget what God had done in the, has done in the past. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, We are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. See, we look at our current situation, and our hearts are filled with despair because we've forgotten the God who brought us to that situation. Now, what should have happened in Israel? What should have happened when they stood there on the other side? Yes, they had no food, but but maybe as they started to grumble, someone should have reminded them that if God had just delivered them through all of these other things, maybe God could deliver them through this as well. That if God was present with them to deliver them from their greatest enemies— Maybe God will be present with them to to deliver them through this trial. And just like the Israelites should have remembered that on the other side of the Red Sea, you and I need to remember that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty. The greatest need we have is to meditate on the cross of Christ, to see that when we suffered under our greatest enemy, sin itself, when we are in danger of eternal condemnation because of the sin that we had committed against an eternal God, God sent his only son to live a perfect, righteous life and to deliver us from that great trial of sin. God gave his son over to the cross to die a criminal's death on the cross to make payment for sin for us so that we could now have eternal life through faith in him. Jesus has come and Delivered us from our greatest enemy so that when we suffer, our greatest need is to set our eyes on the cross and be encouraged that if God would deliver us from our sin, then surely he is able to deliver us from this trial. Surely he is able to bring us through this suffering. So you and I, we have this assurance that if God was present in our greatest distress, he's going to be present in our distress now. And so I wonder how many of you feel burdened. And you have a whole list of things that need to happen in order for that burden to be lifted off your shoulder. You feel the weight of suffering, the pain of suffering, and you have a whole list of things that need to happen if you're going to come out of this suffering. But God has this message for you this morning that you need to look to the cross and see that the God who has taken care of your sin is going to take care of you in this day. In verse 4, the Lord responds to the grumbling of the Israelites. Look what he says in verse 4. He says to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather, gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, they, they prepare what they, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather. The Lord responds to his grumbling people by telling them that he's going to provide for them. It's not true that he's departed from them. It's not true that it would have been better for them to die in Egypt. The Lord is actually in their midst, and he's going to provide for them exactly what they they need. He's going to do this by raining bread from heaven. Now, this bread, it's going to come with stipulations. Israel's told they're only to gather what they need for each day. In the morning when they wake up, there will be plenty of bread, more than they need, but they're only to gather a day's worth. Now, there's an important reason for this. And God tells us exactly what it is. He says that he does this in order, you see it in the end of verse 4, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. See, even in our trials, God is intentionally using them to teach us and to test us. Through this test, Israel would learn how to be dependent on the Lord. Israel would learn what it looks like to trust in God. So that in Deuteronomy 8.3, Moses would reflect on the lesson that they learned as the people of God from the manna, and he says this in Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your fathers had known, listen, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so the question for the Israelites in this trial, in this struggle of hunger, is this. Who will I look to for provision? Who's going to provide for me in the midst of this difficulty? In verse 6, Moses and Aaron point their eyes exactly to who they need to be looking to. They say to the people of Israel, in verse 6, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See what they're doing, what Moses and Aaron are doing there? They're reminding the people of God, look what God's done for you. He brought you out of the land of Egypt, but look at verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling. Moses and Aaron are saying this to to Israel and to us. Just as you saw God deliver you from your greatest enemy, you will see his glory as he cares for you day after day. God has glorified as he continues to take care of his children in the desert. We need to hear this this morning, that when we face trial, when we face difficulty, this isn't proof that God has abandoned us. Initially, this is what we feel, don't we? When something hard happens in life, we feel like God is gone. But God needs to show Israel, he needs to show us this morning, that the presence of your trials isn't proof that he is gone, the presence of your trials is proof that he is going to show up that you're going to see the glory of the Lord as his presence provides for you in the midst of this trial. This is why Moses and Aaron respond at the end of verse 7, for what are we? For what are we that you grumble against us? Israel, why are you looking to us? Why are you looking to us as though we could provide for you in the midst of this trial? Why are you looking to us as though it's our presence that's going to save you from this trial? Verse 8, Moses says, when the Lord gives you In the evening, meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, the question for us in the midst of trial is this. Who are we going to look look to for deliverance? Whose presence are we going to long for in the midst of our trials? Is it possible that even now, day after day, instead of looking to the presence of God, You're looking to other deliverers. Is it possible that God needs to teach you this humble lesson this morning? That you can't live on bread alone, but only by the word of the Lord. Who are you looking to, to depend on in the midst of your trial? Listen, I don't call a carpenter when I break my leg. They're not going to be able to do for me what I need. I don't call McDonald's when I want help with my diet. They're only going to reverse the problem. And when I am suffering, when I am in trial, day after day, I must call upon the Lord. He is the one that I need. Lesson's not finished here, though, because God's also teaching me through Israel that he's providing in the moment of my trial. God is present in the midst of my trial. And God is teaching me this morning that he's providing in the moment of my trial. Now God's eager to prove to his people that not only is he present, but also he is providing. And so look how God graciously responds to Israel, even though Israel doesn't rightly respond to the Lord. Even though Israel's grumbling, God's so gracious in his response. And look at verse 9, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. God says to his people, I've heard you. Verse 10, it says, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God says, I've heard you, and I'm with you. Verse 12, he says, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God says, I've heard you. God says, I am present with you. God says, I'm going to provide for you in the midst of this trial. Just as that was true for Israel, that is so true for us. How does God respond to us even when we respond wrongly to him in our trials? God responds with this overwhelming grace, this overwhelming mercy. People of Israel, they grumble against God, and God's response, I'm here. I hear you. I'm going to provide for you. Listen, what's our response to people that grumble in our lives? When someone at the office who regularly complains start complaining, what do you do? Oh, here they go again. I'm putting in the headphones. I'm just going to ignore them completely. I don't want to hear what this grumbler has to say. God doesn't do that. God is so gracious with us. What do we do when our kids complain about the food that we've placed in front of them? For dinner. Oh, we say, you're not eating for a week then. If you don't want to eat this food, if you're not thankful, if you're going to be a little brat, a little twerp, then you're not eating for a week. No grumbling in my house. That's not how God responds to us. God is so compassionate. God is so merciful towards us in our weakness. We need to hear this this morning, especially if you're suffering. God is not looking to crush you in your weakness. Prophet Isaiah says that Jesus came as one who is gentle and lowly to the weak. It says in Isaiah that he's a, he's a, a, bru, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And you need to know that in your desperation, in your neediness, in your weakness, when you turn to the Lord, he will always receive you. And this is something you need to do. Read through the Gospels and just think about the compassion Christ has towards sinners. The compassion that Christ has towards those who are weak. The compassion that Christ has towards those who are often wrong about who he is. Christ is so filled with grace and compassion for our weaknesses. So much so that all throughout the gospel this overwhelming theme is that Jesus would rather be with the weak and the sinful. It's those who, are, who think they're fine on their own. It's those who think they have some sort of self-righteousness that Jesus is most angry with. But those who come to Jesus in desperation with faith that he can accomplish a mighty work in their life, these are the ones who Jesus came for. And we need to hear this This morning, God has us in front of his word this morning for a specific reason, to show us his trustworthiness, to show us that when we are filled with weakness, when we feel like we can't go on anymore, when we feel like we don't have what it takes to make it through this trial, this is right where God wants us, completely dependent on you. He is eager this morning to call you to trust in him, to trust in his providence, God wants us to know here that he's going to provide for us in the moment of our trial. And so he teaches the Israelites through the provision of the manna. We see this in verses 13 to 30. Moses fleshes out how this provision will work. In verse 13, we see that God had listened to Israel's request for meat. It says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. He would provide meat in the evening In the morning he would provide bread, so that in verse 14, it says, When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. The bread is provided for the people to eat. And so this is what the Lord commands them in verse 16. He says, Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Notice the supernatural provision of the manna. This is not just God telling them, hey, you guys are going to find food on the way. This is God telling them, I'm going to provide for you miraculously every day of your 40-year journey in this desert. In verse 35, we're told exactly how, this, how long this would go on. This would be a long lesson for the people of God in dependence on God for 40 years. Every day, supernaturally, they'd wake up and they would have to trust that the Lord was going to do the same thing he did yesterday. He was going to provide them the food they needed for this journey. They'd have to trust that no one would go hungry because God had committed to providing for his people. Now, listen, this is, God, God is intentionally putting Israel through this. Just like God intentionally puts us through our trials and our difficulties, God's intentionally putting Israel through this to teach them an important lesson. They must learn trust and dependence. So, then rather than being a curse, what this daily bread becomes, what the manna becomes, is actually a blessing. Through this, they're taught what it looks like to depend on the Lord. What it looks like to have no idea how they're going to get food other than to trust that the Lord is going to provide it for them. God could provide storehouses of food for them so that they'd have enough for a year. Maybe so even provide a way that they would have enough food for the 40 years so that they'd have an assurance. But instead, daily, they would have to depend on the Lord's provision. See, the temptation... For Israel is that if they were given a lot of food, maybe they would forget God. Maybe if they didn't feel their daily dependence on the Lord, maybe they'd forget who he is. And this is how God often teaches us dependence. What God will often do in our trials is take away the things that maybe we're dependent on so that we look to him, so that we trust in him that we depend on him. And this is a sweet thing. If God puts you in trial so that you are brought to a place where you cry out, God, I have nothing but you. I'm I'm dependent on nothing but you. I have nothing left. That is when God is going to work in your life. This is what Jesus does for the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, Jesus sends his disciples out. He sends them with nothing but a staff and sandals so that they might learn dependence. This is the crash course that Jesus gives on dependence in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 32. Look what it says there. I believe it's going to come up on the screen. Matthew chapter 6, maybe not. I'm going to flip to it in my Bible to read this for you. Look what Jesus teaches us about dependence, about trusting on God's daily provision. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what will you eat or what will you drink? Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, it not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Jesus goes on, and which of you can, by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? knows that you need them all. See, the only provision that Israel would have was manna sufficient for the day. And God was teaching what he has always taught his people about dependence, what he needs to teach us about dependence, even this morning. That the only way that they knew they would have provision for tomorrow was by trusting that God would provide The only power they had to trust God was that he had promised he would do it. The only evidence they had was proof that he had done it all the way up until this point. He had carried them all this way. He had promised that he would provide proof day after day of his care for them, of his providence for them, that every day they'd wake up with new manna, that they could look to yesterday, look today, see that they had manna, and trust that he would do it again tomorrow. Listen, church, you see God's provision for you God doesn't always show you all the details about the future. The promise of provision is that you have grace sufficient for today. The promise of provision is that you have everything you need today to live a life to the glory of God. So many of us suffer because our hearts are crippled with anxiety, our hearts are filled with fear of worry of what might happen in the future. What if this doesn't happen? Or what if this person gets sick? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if I'm not able to do this anymore? Our anxiety, it thrives off the what-ifs. But understand this, there's a reason why God hasn't shown you the future. There's a reason why at times you don't know how God is going to get you through this trial, how he's going to provide for you. There's a reason why you don't know if your kids will keep following the Lord. There's a reason why you don't know if God will ever heal you of this sickness. We don't always know why God caused some circumstances to happen at specific times. But God could answer all these questions, but He chooses not to. He could wake up tomorrow morning with a note explaining everything. Wouldn't that be great? And yet, God has chosen to keep us in the dark because He's teaching us this lesson that we must trust Him today. And so, one of the things really practically I love to do. When I find myself maybe beginning to worry or being filled with anxiety, I like, love to play a game. I call it the what if game. This is how you play the what if game. What you do is you take your anxiety and you say, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's play the what if game. Let's draw out all the possible things that could happen that I'm worried about. What if that person I love gets really sick? What's gonna happen? What if, what if they pass away? And you ask all these questions, you play the what-if game, you draw out all the logical conclusions, but then you don't do this. You don't just allow that to get you anxious. You don't just worry about this day. What you do is you preach to those what-ifs. You preach this truth that, that on that day, if that thing happens, yes, it could happen. We live in a broken world. But if it happens, the promise I have is that God is going to provide for me grace that is sufficient for that day. On that day, just like every other day that God has provided grace for me in my life, He is going to provide grace for me on that day. Even though I don't know how He will do it, even though I don't know how I could walk through something like that, I trust God. I trust that He's going to provide for me in that. He's calling me to trust Him with today. Isn't it true when we have much, Or when nothing is going wrong in our lives. That can be one of the most dangerous places, isn't it? That can be the hardest place to depend on God. That can be the hardest place to follow God is when everything's going great. When everything's easy. Because then you feel like you can just do it on your own. But what we need to see is that when God places us in trial, when God places us in a place where we can do nothing but depend on him, this is one of his greatest blessings to us. In verse 18, we, we see exactly how God was using this manna as a test. In verse 4, he, he said that he was testing his people. But in verse 18, we see that this is how God uses our suffering. This is how God is purposeful, purposefully uses our trials with intention. Verse 18, it says, But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much and had, uh, had nothing left over, whoever gathered little, had no lack, each of them gathered as much as he could eat, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But listen to this, they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Some of the Israelites, they had failed the test. They were told just to gather the provision for the day, that they didn't need any more because God was going to provide more, but they had failed. In verses 22 to 26, Moses explains the Sabbath provision, another uh, stipulation that was given to Israel. See, on the sixth day, they needed double trust. They needed to gather twice as much as they needed because on the seventh day, no manna would be provided. And so miraculously, on the sixth day, the manna wouldn't rot. They would go to sleep, they'd wake up on the seventh day, and every other day that manna would rot, but on the sixth day, it would stay preserved. Look what it says in verses 27 to 30. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Again, some of God's people had failed the test. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The Israelites were given this test in the manna, and for many of them, it exposed their struggles to trust the Lord. That they had this felt need to provide for themselves. That they couldn't be entirely dependent on the Lord. That they felt like if they didn't do something themselves, they wouldn't have food for themselves. See, God was giving them this test, and this wasn't a test like an exam where you can like pass or fail, and if you pass or fail, you're done with that course. God gave his people tests like that at times. At times there were tests where if you didn't pass that test, you were cut off from the people of God. This isn't a test like that. This is much more of an interrogation that God is giving to each of his people to root out their spiritual enemies. God wouldn't cast his people off for taking too much manna, but daily they would learn what it looks like to depend on the Lord, and daily God would expose those who did not depend on the Lord, who did not trust on the Lord. Day after day, God was rooting out of Israel every impulse that, they, that might cause them to doubt the care of the Father. And so this test was much more like a daily uh, interrogation rather than a test of pass or fail. Some of us might experience this daily, this type of inter- uh, interrogation tonight. Some of your kids might have Halloween candy tonight. And when they go to bed, you may look at that Halloween candy sitting in the living room. And you may go over there and open one up and eat it and then open up another and eat it and then keep going. And the kids may come down in the morning, and I'm sure every parent is guilty of this. They may see that some of their candy is gone. Maybe because you don't have a past history of crime, you didn't even know to hide the evidence. So they see the wrappers everywhere. And what will your kids do? They will go into interrogation mode. All the lights off in the living room, blinding light in your face. First, I'm going to ask you, Dad, did you eat my candy? I'm trying to find who's my enemy to, the can- to my candy. Did you eat it? Let me see your fingers. Is there any chocolate on it? What about you, Mom? Did you eat the candy? I need to find who did this. I need to find who I need to hide my candy from. Your kids will interrogate you to find the enemy of their candy. And this is what God does in our trials. This is how our trials can be a test. God will use trials in our lives to expose our spiritual enemies. God will use trials in our lives to show us the things that we are too dependent on. To show us the things that we are placing our trust in. This is why Peter says in First 1 Peter 1, 1.6 he says these words, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if Necessary, do you see those words? If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying this that in the Christian walk, suffering is necessary. Why? Because God is doing a work in you through your suffering. In your trial, God is doing a work in you. He is putting you into the furnace. And like a precious metal, all the impurity is rising to the top, and he's taking those impurities out of your life so that your holiness, your life of growth in the Lord is to his praise and glory. God is using the trials in your life to expose your spiritual enemies. I love what Thomas Brooks says. He says, afflictions are a crystal glass wherein the soul has the clearest sight of the ugly face of sin. See, these trials that God is placing us in are his mercy. He loves us too much. He hates sin with such great intensity that he is willing to allow us to endure suffering, to endure trial, in order that the enemy of sin might be drawn out from us, in order that we may learn ways that we aren't being dependent on him, that we aren't trusting in him. God will do this to you because he loves you. Parents, think about the way you feel if you were to see your child go into surgery. They needed some sort of surgery to intervene in some sort of sickness that was in their life. Yes, you would hate the surgery. Yes, your heart would break as your child went into this room to be operated on. But what would you love? You would love the healing that would come through that surgery. And this is what God is doing in your life through your trials. He is bringing suffering into your life in order that he might expose the sickness of sin. So then this is our desire in trials. If we're walking in maturity with Christ, our desire is that when the trials come, our prayer is this, God, expose my sin. God, I want to see it. God, I don't want to waste this trial. God, I want you to use this trial in my life for the sake of my holiness, that I might be more like you. I've seen God work in my own life time and time again through the trials that I walk through. I know people whose lives have been amp- absolutely transformed, sin absolutely put off by the trial of a loved one, being sick. The trial that they walk through gives them such perspective of eternity. They realize that, that they realize the things they have been committed to were so meaningless in the grand scheme of eternity. I know people whose affections for God have been so dull, their joy in Christ been nearly non-existent. But then trial hits and what happens? They run to God. They're dependent on him. See, God's not only providing for us in the midst of our trial. He's providing in us the transformation that needs to happen for us as he prepares us for heaven. And so, yes, in trial, God is providing you all you need in order to endure. But he's also providing you all you need in order to be transformed. God is using trial to provide everything you need. I trust that God provides through the trial so that lastly I can trust that he is praised in the memory of my trial. He's providing in the moment of my trial, but he is praised in the memory of my trial. At the end of this story, God does something instructive for us. Verse 31, Israel takes the manna and names it. In verse 32, God has another command for Israel. Moses said, this is what the Lord commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it in the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Israel is instructed to keep a piece of this manna in a jar. It's to be a souvenir that reminds God's people for generations to come of the lesson that God had taught Israel in the wilderness. That he is a God who will care for his people. That he is a God who will provide for his people. Moses is instructed to take this manna and place it with the testimony. Testimony refers to the most important thing that God could give his people. It was his word. The manna would be later placed in the Ark of the Covenant which signified his presence with his people so that everywhere they took the Ark they would be reminded of this truth as they saw the manna that where God's presence is he is providing for his people everything that they need. That in the day of their need he provides. You see eventually Israel would leave the desert the trial would end no longer would they need God to provide manna they would have other sources of food but they needed to keep this reminder. To know that in thick and in thin, in trial, in living life when we're not in trial, we need the Lord. We need to depend on Him. That God will care for us, even when we have much, through His presence and provision. Christian, can you look back on your life for a moment? Can we do a a moment of just self-reflection right now? Now, Haven't you seen that God is doing the same thing for you? Maybe you don't have a trophy case in your house of all the past trials and sufferings you've had. Maybe you don't have souvenirs to remind you of what God has done. But you do have the memories that God, uh, of the trials that you have walked through, that God has held you fast in. So many hard times, so many days of darkness, and yet, God has been faithful to you in each of them. In the memory of your trials, He is praised. This is the truth that every child of God can look back on their life saying. I love how David says it in Psalm chapter 37, verses 24 to 25. He says these words I have been young and now I am old. For some of us, that should be our life verse. I have been young and now I'm old. But look what David says Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Listen, pull the oldest saints and each of them will say that in the memory of all their trials, God has been praised. Has life been easy? No. But God has been faithful And he's always proved his presence despite the hard circumstances. In the midst of difficulty and suffering, he has always provided. And so how does this inform the way that we endure trial? Well, we trust that in the midst and the moment of our trial, God is working so that he will be praised in the memory of it. We trust that though we don't know the details, God is near. He's not distracted but providing for us in our suffering and that he's using this trial for our for his glory and for our growth and so we trust him trust that he's praised as you depend on his presence trust that he is praised as you depend on his constant provision and trust that he will be praised as you walk through this trial and get to the other side of it and realize that every step of the way he has been holding you up that looking back you have served a God who has been completely faithful to you.